Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. So this is part two of a three-part series uh, called Conversations with Jesus. And the aim of this series really is to paint and explore the big picture of what life with Jesus looks like, the relation, uh, life of relationship with Jesus. Uh, last week, we looked at the first move in this relational dance, if you will, uh, the move of connection. And we talked about how Jesus makes a beeline for those who are in the margins, uh, either through choice or by circumstance, um, to offer you living water so that you might live life in its fullest in connection with him and with others rather than live on the stagnant water of the walled off margin. Uh, Today we're going to look at the second move in this relational dance uh, called um, the move of engagement which is made possible because we're known by Jesus Uh, and next week we will look at the move of involvement which is made possible because we are sent by Jesus. So move number two in which you are known Last week we asked, how do you respond to the all-seeing, all-present God who sees what you don't want to be seen? This week we're going to consider what happens next when you say yes to him, when you say yes and attend to his gaze and choose to enter into the connection that he offers. What happens next? What kind of engagement with him have we been designed for? What is the fitting posture of engagement Um, that is, that is fitting for the life of faith in God. Uh, now, this is not going to be a three-point sermon with three sort of things to write down. So I just want to flag that up front so you're not like waiting out for them if you've got your pen poised. Um, this is more or let's go on a journey together and ask some questions and explore and see where the road takes us and finally reach a resolution. So I just want to flag that's where we're going. So stay with me. Let's go on the journey as we, as we travel together with the Lord this morning. Uh, And as we start, I want to acknowledge that we're not having this conversation in a vacuum. Um, We are having this conversation as we live our lives in an unstable world. This is a world where stock markets crash, um, where relationships can be unpredictable, where we fail, where we have car accidents, where people we love get sick. You know, while some people seem to have this capacity to endure through hardship, I don't think any of us really have to look very far uh, to see, to think of examples of people uh, who, when things in their life fall apart, so do they. And I want to be very careful to be clear that I'm not talking about grief here. Um, I don't want to minimise the very real pain that we all experience as part of living in this world. Um, What I'm talking about instead um, is those times in our lives where our reaction to something in our life falling apart is so strong that it's like our own life is over. I just want to be very clear about that distinction. Um, For me, I experienced this Uh, a couple of years ago, over the last couple of years, maybe like five years ago, I decided that I was going to move to France to start a youth organisation over there. So just just a small dream. And and so I went over there in 2011 and I met with pastors and I met with missionaries and um, I met with an organisation over there that I wanted to sort of partner with and they all seemed to have all the green lights and people seemed, seemed on the same page. It seemed like it was going to be viable. It seemed like it was going to be something that would really serve the church over there, something that was really going to be a blessing. So I started working towards that. I did some training here, um, and that's where I was heading. I was heading to France to start this organisation. Then um, <laughs> the Lord got involved, uh, <laughs> which is, sounds a bit funny, really. But anyway, it is funny. Um, a couple of years ago, I was, I was at church, previous church that I was at, and we were worshipping God one morning, and I felt that he said to me, um, I want you to let it go. I want you to give it to me. 
And I was just, like, I burst into floods of tears. And, and then I, like, went out and was chatting with a friend. And, and I said to her, I actually don't know who I'll be if I let this go. It's when you know you're in trouble. <laughs> I actually don't know who I'll be if I let this go. It had become so... Um, my identity had become so wrapped up in this thing that I wanted to do for God. Um, yet that when it fell apart, I fell apart. What's going on with that, with that kind of thing? Um, what's happening beneath the surface um, that means that we fall apart when something in our lives does? Could there be something in the way that we engage with God beneath the surface? And this is why we're going deep, by the way. This is the aim, just, just to, to be clear. <laughs> Could there be something in the way that we engage with God beneath the surface that means that we can stand firm, not immune to life's challenges, but stand firm in the midst of them. In the passage for today, we get to know the Samaritan woman a little bit better. And we discover that her life probably hasn't turned out the way that she always imagined when she was a little girl. Uh, she's had five husbands and the man that she has now isn't her husband, um, which is probably the main reason that she's an outcast from society, that she's on the margin of society. Uh, this is what happens in verses 16 to 18. He told her, Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. We saw last week that Jesus responds to us with grace. And we see that again here. He's so, can you see that? He's so gentle with her in her vulnerability, acknowledging the truth of what she's said. What you have said is quite true. And all the while he's peeling back the layers um, as he pursues relationship with her. Uh, it's so interesting to me to see how the woman responds to feeling known by him. Um, and it's not so different to how we saw her respond last week with prickly walls. Um, first of all, she acknowledges that he must be a prophet um, and then promptly directs the conversation away from her love life to religion, as you do. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What? How do you do that? In one move, move the conversation from your love life to places of worship. <laughs> you know that awkward moment um, when you're at a dinner party and someone says something a little bit out of line or things just get a little bit too deep or a little bit too awkward and you just don't know what to, what to do, so you just do this sweeping deflection to get the conversation back into kind of a safe zone? <laughs> Or when there's like a really awkward silence on the phone. My, my most recent memory of a conversation like this with an awkward silence, the way it was saved was, so the North Shore's nice? <laughs> okay, we just blurt these things out to try to save the conversation when it gets a bit uncomfortable or a bit deep, bring it back up to the surface. So I think that might be what's going on with her there, back into safe territory. Now she takes the conversation back to what she knows and understands. Uh, it's this above-the-surface area of familiarity. There's something about the safe and familiar um, that gives us comfort when things get a bit deep and, uncom and uncomfortable. So the woman responds to this prophetic word that Jesus has had, which is one that goes beneath the surface, right? By bringing it back to talking about something that she knows. Something that is safe, controllable and external. It's almost like she'd rather talk about anything else 
and so chooses the most burning issue between the Jews and Samaritans, which is their places of worship. So just by way of backstory, um, the Jews' place of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, for, the, for the Samaritans, it was Mount Gerizim. Uh, the reason for that is that even though they had the same kind of spiritual uh, roots, their places of worship were different because the Samaritans interpreted the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, differently to how the Jews did. And they have a different history. Up until Jesus, worship was inextricably linked to place. Um, for the Jews, the place where God lived was in the temple. So if you wanted to worship God, you had to go to the temple. Place was really, really, really important. And both Jesus and the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, knew that. I feel like we are so much like the Samaritan woman sometimes. We get uncomfortable when somebody digs beneath the surface. We like things to be measurable. We like things to be controllable. We like to do external things that give us a sense of control when life feels out of control or when what's going on for us beneath the surface starts to be exposed. You know, we like to organise things to within an inch of their lives. We like to clean. We like to drive the same old predictable roads. Um, we might work hard. All these kinds of external things we like to do so we kind of feel like things are measurable and controllable. There's a strong pull to the controllable when life feels out of control, when life feels unpredictable. And here's the kicker. In an unstable world, there's a strong pull to orient your whole life around things you know and things you can control. And now here's the problem with doing that. Um, and what I find fascinating is that in turning to, to something familiar, the woman reveals that her engagement with God is only as deep as the external things that she knows and turns to to feel in control. Let me say that one more time. The woman reveals that her engagement with God is only as deep as the external things, places of worship, buildings, rituals, traditions, these things that she knows and can turn to to feel in control. Those things have become the extent of her engagement with God because they're familiar and they're known. But as a result, she misses the heart of engagement with God, the beneath-the-surface bit. And I feel like it might be the same for us sometimes. Isn't it so easy for our engagement with God to become defined by the externals that we know and can predict? By the building we meet in, the order of service that we tend to follow, the songs that we sing... Those things feel safe and familiar to us. There's nothing wrong with that. They, but they, are, they can, if we let them, allow us to stay in control if that's what we turn to, if that's what we define our engagement with God by. And it's a scary thought. But is it possible that some of, for some of us today, we could have missed the heart of engagement with God? That our engagement with him is defined by the above-the-surface externals of faith and, as a result, we miss the beneath-the-surface heart of true engagement with God himself. Is that making some sense? <coughs> it might look like going to church every week, saying the right things, even serving at church, singing the songs, but if those things define your engagement with God, if they're the extent of your engagement with him, then I want to gently, ever so gently, suggest this morning that perhaps you are choosing to stay above the surface in your faith because you can see and know and predict the things that are on the surface. 
and you can stay in control that way. And I want to push on just a little bit deeper and say that really what we're talking about here is our worship. It's possible to look like we are worshipping God on the surface, on the outside, but deep down something else is the object of our worship. How on earth do you identify what that is, if that is the case? I want to suggest that the object of your worship is the thing that your life is oriented around. It's the ground you're standing on. It's the soil you're planting on. It's the hub to your tyre. I don't know why I'm talking about cars all the time. Anyway, very unlike me. It's the thing that you would rather do. That it's the thing that you would do anything rather than lose. It's the object of your greatest affection. It's your closest companion. It's the thing that you know. It might be money. It might be relationships. It might be power and control. It might be success. You'd rather do anything than lose your hold on those things because it's the ground you stand on, the soil you're planted in, the hub to your tyre. When you worship something, you wrap your whole life around it. You tether yourself to it. And when we do that with anything other than God, to whom we are designed to wrap our lives around, and who is the only stable object of our worship, we're wrapping our lives around something that could let us down, to tether ourselves to the instability of the world. I think that might be why we see people's lives fall apart uh, when something in their life does because they've wrapped their lives around it. They've oriented their whole world around it. And when the ground they're standing on collapses, or when the hub to their tire disappears, or when the soil they're planted in dries up, then what happens? There's just collapse. The scary thing, and this is what happened to me with France, is that when on the outside we look like, we, we, we look like we're worshipping God and we believe that we are worshipping God, but on the inside we're actually tethered to something else. When that thing falls apart or lets us down, we can very easily believe that it's God who's fallen apart, that it's God who lets us down, when actually it's the true object of our worship that has let us down. And that's what happened to me. It's, it's a scary place to be. But it's a helpful wake-up call, I have to say. There can only, because there can only be one ground that we stand on, when it's something other than God, it actually blocks the depth of our engagement with God because we're not, stand to, we're not free to stand on the solid ground of Him. Going okay? Good. <laughs> I hope I've shown um, that this is not the kind of engagement with God that we are designed for. This doesn't bring glory to God. It doesn't bring abundant life to us. So what is the kind of engagement with God that is fitting for the life of faith in him? Well, let's take a look um, at what Jesus says for a clue. Well, he spells it out, really. Verses 21 to 24. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. 
For they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This is the heart of true worship. This is the alternative. This is the engagement with God that Jesus has made possible for our lives. It's more than the songs we sing. It's more than the place that we go to worship, more than coming to church. This, the fitting posture of engagement with God is one of true worship of him. It's not just surface worship, that's actually misdirected worship because your life is wrapped around something else. It's true worship that comes from the heart, from beneath the surface. And what is this true worship characterized by? What does it look like to live with God as the ground that you stand on, the hub to your tire and the soil that you're planted in? Jesus points out a few things. Firstly, it's worship that's in spirit and truth. This is where I will give you three things. First of all, it's worship that's in spirit and in truth. It's enabled by God's living water that we talked about last week, his Holy Spirit, through whom we find connection with him and with one another. We're to engage with him with our spirits, to respond to his divine initiative, to follow his promptings, to have a deep spiritual relationship with him. And it's in truth. You know, the spirit of God applies the truth of God to our hearts. I feel like often uh, as Christians, we can emphasize either the spirit of God or the truth of God, the word of God. You know, you might find some churches that are all about the Holy Spirit and some churches that are all about the Bible. But in, in the passage, in the scripture, you can't separate them. It's, you might have a hyphen between them. It's spirit truth. It's like one word. It's like um, salt and pepper calamari or... R&R, rest and relaxation. Um, It's like that you can't separate them. You can't separate an author from its work, one of my friends once said. You can't separate spirit and truth. Uh, In the Hebrew, in Genesis, when God speaks in creation, the word... um, there's a word in the, in the Hebrew called, which is ruach. Ruach means both, same word, for breath and spirit. When God speaks, his words are carried on his breath, which is the same word for spirit. So when God speaks creation, his words are carried on his spirit. When we read the word of God, his word is carried on his spirit. His spirit is the power in his word that applies his word to our hearts. It's both and. You can never separate the two. Our worship is in, this, it's in spirit truth. It's in the spirit and in truth. It's worship that comes from the depths of us where his spirit meets ours. And it's one that is nurtured by him, by the truth of his word. Secondly, it's worship that's dislocated from place. From the point of Jesus coming to earth, worship is not on a mountain, it's not in Jerusalem. He has dislocated worship from place. It's everywhere. We no longer have to go to a church to worship. We don't need to go anywhere uh, to worship, to be singing songs, to be worshipping God. It's, and he's done this in order that it can be our whole lives that we bring before him as living sacrifices of worship to him. He had to dislocate worship from place in order for that to be possible. Romans 12, chapter 1 talks about our lives being living sacrifices, our act of pleasing worship to God, so that we can acknowledge him with our whole lives as being greater than us, to orient our whole lives around him. Thirdly, it's now. It's now. This is not the diet starts tomorrow. This is not when the bills are paid, the kids have left school, uh, the family's healthy and I get the promotion. The woman tries to put off in verse 25. I know we all try to put it off, but it's now. A time is coming and has now come, Jesus says. 
True worship is in spirit and truth. It's dislocated from place. It's everywhere and it's now. The kind of worship that the Father seeks, the kind of posture of engagement that we're designed for, is worship that puts Jesus Christ at the center of your life. It's to orient your entire world around him. When we read this passage, we read it within the context of the whole book um, of John, which starts this way. This is how this book, this passage is introduced in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word equals Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This word, this one that has existed for all eternity and through whom all things have been made, he is the one that you have been designed, that I have been designed, that we as a community have been designed to orient our whole world around. He is the one who will never fail you. He is the one who will hold you together when everything else falls apart. He's not contained geographically or architecturally anymore. He will be with you wherever you go as you live your life for him, for him, through him, and in him. This is the posture of engagement with God that we've been designed for. How do we get to that place? How do we move from misdirected worship of the things that we know and can control to true worship of God? I want to suggest that it's by transferring our allegiance, our worship, our orientation from the things that we know, from what we know, to who we know. Transferring our orientation from what we know to who we know. There are a few words in, I'm getting all language today, there are a few words in Greek uh, that are translated in English as know. And the one that is used here in verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, is a knowing that's concerned primarily with information. It's an external kind of knowing. It's not a knowing of experience, generally. It's not a knowing of experience. And as we've seen, worship that has to do with the external knowing cannot sustain us through life's trials. Worship that grows out of the soil of experiential knowing, however, a life that's oriented oriented around a God who knows us and is known by us, that's a different matter. That's a different story altogether. It's not worshipping on a mountain, not worshipping in Jerusalem. It's a whole different reality. And one that Jesus makes known to us. I want to suggest today that true worship grows in the soil of deep relationship with God. The life orientation that will keep you steady is formed by knowing God and being known by him. This is where it all begins with this experiential knowing, being known by God in which you are known and knowing God by experiencing him as he knows you. And what he's revealed to us, of course, in his word. I don't know if you noticed, but all this talk of worship in verses 20 to 24 is bookended on either end of the passage by talk of knowing. Verses 16 to 18, Jesus shows that he knows the Samaritan woman when he has the prophetic word about her. And in verses 25 and 26, 
when she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. He replies, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He reveals himself to her. He makes himself known to her. Not only does he know her, but he's available to be known by her. He wants to be known by the Samaritan woman, by you, by me, by this world. He wants to be known. He has made himself available to be known. This is a good and kind God that we get to know, that we get to experience being known by. One who pursues us with his love because he knows that it's in being known by him that we experience him as he truly is, loving and kind and gracious and powerful and stable. He knows that as we experience him, our lives will start to orient themselves around him because he's so attractive, he's so good, we will want to orient our lives around him. And there find wholeness and steadfastness, peace, rest and security, no matter what comes our way. Deep relationship with God is the soil that we are designed to be planted in. Only there can we be strengthened and changed and grow strong. Strong roots that go deep and hold us steady through any trial. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word that you plant in our hearts, God. And Lord, I just want to pray for that seed that you have planted this morning in our hearts that you would continue to water it, God, that you would shine your light and your love upon it. God, that you would send down roots into your heart, into our hearts, God. God, that we would be planted in the soil of deep relationship with you, that we'd be planted in the soil of being known by you, of knowing you. Thank you that you have come to make a way for us to be in relationship with you through Jesus that you know us, you know us through and through and you want us to know you through and through, God. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.